Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture. And here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the free version of the Michael Savage podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you. But there are many of you who would love to be able to listen to my show without any ads. I love ads, but many of you want to listen to the podcast free of ads. So we created something for you, a solution. We call it the Savage Premium. For less than the price of one flat, tasteless beer at your local bar, you can receive access to all of my podcasts going back years ad-free for just $3.99. That's at $3.99 a month. You'll get not only my ad-free podcast, but you will also occasionally receive access to material that is exclusive for members only, and I'm going to give you the list in a minute of what you've, what you've missed. You're going to get an occasional monologue from me, maybe a reading from one of my novels, sneak peeks of interviews before anyone else hears them, archive pieces dating back to 1994. Many things that come up, you're going to get exclusive access to Michael Savage material. Details can be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com, and if you want to join... All you got to do is go to glow.fm and search Savage Premium. That's glow.fm and search Savage Premium. Now, you will always have access to my free weekly podcast. I want to be clear about that. That's my promise to you. But if you want less ads and more Savage, join the Savage Premium Club today and never miss a spoken word of mine. It's glow.fm slash Savage Premium. You can find it on michaelsavage.com. And here's some of the stuff that you have missed so far. Michael Savage reading from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. My words, my voice. Savage reads from one of his lost journals, Fiji, 1968. Savage's first drive-time show, Hour One. My interview with the Jewish gangster, very popular. I uh, read from my first written published article, Who is at the Helm? 
from 1965. It's heard nowhere but on my premium site. I read passages from my novel, Abuse of Power. Uh, we replayed Fat Al's Tuna. My Savage Show from 324.94, the earliest show in the archive, 324.94. My interview with Donald Trump from 110.2011. 110.2011, while Mark Levin was mocking him and Sean Hannity was mocking him uh, and the others were mocking him, I was interviewing Trump. Much more. And remember, subscribers also get ad-free podcasts every week. The cost is less than a beer at a bar and you get a better buzz. <laughs> with the Savage Premium. So go to go to glow.fm slash Savage Premium for full access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive sound you'll not hear anywhere else. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Michael Savage Podcast. We're reaching a critical mass here. I mean, reports just surfaced that we've all heard about that Russia is gearing up to mobilize 700,000 troops for a new offensive to cut off Ukraine from Europe and face down NATO, unquote. Now, to discuss this reported escalation and recent developments in the Ukraine conflict, as well as to speculate on what might happen with this winter offensive, we brought back Colonel Douglas McGregor, a very famous American tank commander, PhD, West Point, VMI. Don't dismiss his background, please. And uh, he grew up around Ukrainian people, and we're going to listen to his straightforward analysis. But before we start this interview, I think it would be important to put this war in context in a way that I have not yet done in my coverage. We as Americans naturally will identify with the Ukrainians because we too fought for our independence against a far more powerful force, the British. There's no question in my mind that the Ukrainians see themselves and are in many ways just like the American colonists who fought off the British. They really are the noble ones in this battle. And there's also no question that the Russians are generally seen as the tyrannical British who wanted to control and suppress the colonies. We understand that. However, we also must understand the background to this current war, because it's a war, and you'd have to go back at least to 2013, if not back a few centuries, to understand the whole picture. And I don't have any intention of trying to conduct an entire lesson in history here. We know that in 2013, 2014, John McCain and the U.S. State Department went over there and tried to stir up a revolution against the Russians. There was relative peace. Yes, there was an installed leader from Russia in Ukraine, but there was peace and it was called the Maiden Revolution, stirred up by John McCain. And that led to where we are today. And there's been murder back and forth for all the 10 years now. Russians killed, Ukrainians killed. However, I must emphasize that there is a stark, terrible difference today between the American colonists trying to throw off the British. And if you don't know that, you're listening to too much Fox News. The very real threat of nuclear weapons and World War III creates a greater risk not only to the Ukrainian people and all of Ukraine and all of Europe, but to the world itself. And so I have to conclude that although the Ukrainians are on the right side of history fighting off their Russian oppressors, the nuclear risk poses a greater peril to the entire human race. And for that reason alone, a peace accord must be reached. Now, in the following podcast, I raise this issue of where are the people calling for peace? Where are the peacemakers? Where are our diplomats? We have none. 
We have drug-addicted left-wing fanatics who think that there are no consequences to war. We must all pray for peace and work for peace and stop calling for more war. That's my opinion. I hope it's yours as well. By the time you listen to the end of this podcast, you may have a different opinion. I'm Michael Savage. Share this podcast with five people. Do the world a favor. Hi, Colonel. Hey, good to see you, doctor. Oh, my God. Things are really heating up. It's, it looks to me like it's Vietnam 2.0. Well, the Ukrainians have all, already lost almost three times the number of dead than we did in Vietnam in the last nine months. And stop and consider that for a minute. 157,000 dead. How do we confirm that, these numbers? Who, who are we getting it from? Well, you're not going to get it from the Ukrainians, uh, so you have, to, you have to look at other sources. In fact, the Russians have published some, but most of what I know comes from people who are intelligence types working on contract, as well as people on the ground over there that I know. Remember, I grew up with Ukrainians and Poles in North Philadelphia, ah. and I lived in uh, Europe for 10 years, so I have a few friends. And, so you're, uh, you're, 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 a, you're a very reliable source. I mean, I love having you on this podcast. I get friends who I really admire, who I've known for years, and some of them special forces, who I wouldn't expect to like you because they're probably deeply enmeshed in the military right now. Some of these guys are probably over there fighting. My guess is we have special forces like in Vietnam as advisors. Would you say that's probably highly likely? Yes, more, more so now than ever, because the Ukrainians are running out of able-bodied men who are willing to fight well this just came out ukraine helicopter crash kills interior minister others it crashed into a kindergarten in a foggy suburb of kiev killing him and about a dozen other people including a child on the ground it, do you think how would we know is that an accident uh they were flying in extremely bad weather very low visibility mm -hmm. it's a puma helicopter which is a french manufacturer it's a very fine aircraft and what i'm being told is that they may well have hit a high tension wire so you would agree it's an accident yes not related yeah. to the war it just bad flying yeah. bad weather bad weather and, and I'll, I'll bet that the pilot probably told his passengers we shouldn't fly and they said it's vital that we we do it mm, i would agree the pilot probably went along with it that's what happened when all the polish most of the polish Leadership 20 years ago was killed flying to a uh, memorial at the Katyn Forest. Oh, they had the president, the prime minister, everybody was on board. And the pilot said we should not land in, in uh, Belarus because it's too dangerous. I, I don't have good visibility. And the president kept haranguing him. Finally, he agreed and they crashed and everybody was killed. It reminds me of a local rock and roll entrepreneur, uh, Bill Graham, 40 years ago, helicopter crash. He was coming back from Altamont, I think a Rolling Stones concert. Pilot didn't want to fly. He insisted because he was one of these guys who had to be done his way. And they flew into Marin County, hit wires, and the, of course, the, the aircraft parrot, everyone died. Here's another one from Clayton Morrison. I know you've been on his uh, YouTube piece. Russia just issued a warning, Colonel, of a major false flag operation that is set to hit Ukraine's grain infrastructure. Ukraine is now walking back claims about the destruction of an apartment complex that killed dozens of civilians. Any uh, word on that, Colonel? 
Well, as far as the apartment complex is concerned, it looks as though an anti-aircraft missile fired by the Ukrainians struck an incoming Russian missile, and the debris from the strike fell on the apartment building. In other words, it was by no means a deliberate attack on civilian infrastructure. All this business about Russians are attacking civilian infrastructure and killing civilians has always been a lot of nonsense. It's just not true. Well, here's the question that I, I have to keep raising. I would agree with you by what I have seen as a civilian is that Russia's tiptoeing around the Ukrainian civilian population. And as a result, that's why they're not making any real headway in their war from their point of view. In one one regard, it seems to me it's the same uh, war plan of one hand behind the back that we used in Vietnam. And yet there are those behind Putin who want him to go full force with a major invasion and get it over with. What's the truth here? Well, first of all, I think we were much more indiscriminate in Vietnam than than you realize. So, in, in fact, I would argue that we and the British were extremely indiscriminate during World War II and that that tradition carried on through all the subsequent wars that we fought. Mm. On the other hand, I, I don't think Putin has to destroy large numbers of civilian lives or civilian infrastructure in order to win. And I think he knows that. Look, we've got over, what, 10, 11 million displaced in Ukraine. Right. There were maybe 35 million people in the country. They used to say, well, there were 40 million Ukrainians. But certainly in the first uh, 10, 15 years of this century, at least 9 or 10 million Ukrainians simply left because they couldn't find work and they couldn't work through the corruption in the country. So there were never as many Ukrainians in Ukraine to begin with as originally uh, expected. So when you look at that, that means you're back to what, uh, 25 million Ukrainians in the, left inside the country and more are still trying to leave. So I think uh, Putin knows he doesn't have to kill them to be successful. Now, the bad news is the Ukrainians have done exactly what we've seen the Palestinians and others in the Middle East do to the Israelis. They do set up gun uh, positions and missile uh, launchers in civilian areas. When that happens, you have no choice. You have to go after it and you hope for the best as far as collateral damage is concerned. But I always push back against this because I've spent a lot of time with the Israelis. And I do know something about the Russians because I did go there and I, I had some interaction with the military. They're not interested in killing civilians. They just aren't. It's no way to win. They understand that very clearly. Terrible situation, because if the Russians are massing one and a half million troops now or whatever the number is, they have an army of one and a half million active that they're building up. They're going to launch how many people in their winter offensive? How many troops? Well, we accounted. This is six weeks ago. We accounted for five hundred and fifty thousand that would be part of the force that attacks Ukraine in the winter. Since then, I think they've added another hundred thousand. But most of the hundred thousand they've added are in support roles, medical evacuation infrastructure, uh, transportation railheads, ammunition handlers, this kind of thing. As far as the 1.5 million, they're nowhere near that yet. And that's that's the sad outcome of our stupidity in, in this Ukrainian operation. We have literally induced the Russians to regain their former position as a major continental military Unbelievable. And, and our military readiness level is lower than ever, correct? It's pathetic. What, what's, Look, we can't even recruit. We have, what, 457,000 uh, troops in the United States Army. 
I mean, it's ridiculous. For a nation of our size, we should be able to maintain an army of 600,000 without batting well, an between eye. Between the... Oh, can't because people don't want to be in the it. vaccinations, affirmative action, the brainwashing, telling white people that they're no good, who the hell would want to enlist into such a hellhole? Well, it's, it's that plus, you know, you have uh, Betty Sue, who is all of, uh, what, 5'2", five, 5'3", five, and weighs 110 pounds. And you're being told that Betty Sue's just as good as you are, and there's nothing you can do that she can't do better. So the average average strapping young man looks at this and says, fine, you don't need me, right? Well, China certainly has used women as cannon fodder. Why can't we? Oh, God. Well, Michael Savage, a host like no other. So yesterday's news, top U.S. general meets Ukrainian counterpart near edge of war zone, Washington Post. And that was Tuesday. First time in person, we had the great Mark Milley, chairman of the so-called Joint Chiefs of Staff, meeting General Valerie Zaluzhny. And they were no longer meeting by Zoom. They were meeting in person. And I guess they're talking about all the goodies that are coming Zelensky's way. The tanks, the Patriot system. And last time you and I spoke, you clearly explained that the Patriots are a very limited system, very limited number of uh, missiles, and it's made they're made mainly for protecting a city infrastructure and nothing more. So what is all what well, is this all about? I mean, they're sending Tiger tanks from from Germany, uh, from from. No, 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 no. Let me stop you there. I just was told that uh, Schultz who is a disappointing figure, to say the least, has now sent a message to Biden in Washington that the Germans will not send any leopard tanks unless the United States is willing to send its own tanks. And since we are unwilling to send any tanks, this means the Germans won't send their tanks. Now, I mean, there's not there's almost nobody I can think of on the European continent that is more disappointing than Schultz. Perhaps Macron runs him a close second. But I must say, I'm 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 glad that Schultz at least has managed to find uh, the strength to push this ball into Biden's court. Mm-hmm. And he's making a point, you know, look, if we're not willing to provide them and, you know, we have seven or eight thousand M1 series tanks. Of course, most of them aren't in very good shape. They're sitting in what we call boneyards in most cases. Uh, then why should the Germans chip in and send their tanks? Well, the, uh, Zelensky wants uh, Abrams tanks. He wants nothing but the best. Of course. Uh, well, that's because he doesn't know that the Abrams tank is a gas guzzler par excellence. As you pointed out, on this, basically, you, you pointed yeah. that out on this podcast. Yeah. No, I mean, if he if you're going to make a choice from the standpoint of logistics, you're much better off with the German tank. What is the Tiger? Is it, is it a derivation of the old pa- Panther Panther tanks? No, it's a leopard. It's a leopard. It's a well, if you look at all of the tanks that we have, if you look at the tanks that we built after the Second World War, they were all patterned on the German tanks of the Second. Wow. Particularly the Tiger and the Panther. Interesting. The uh, the one breakaway model uh, is the Merkava that the Israelis produce, because that was the first one to include a compartment in the back of the tank where you could carry infantry or medical supplies mm. or extra ammunition and they put the engine in the front of the vehicle which meant that you instantaneously added tremendous protection to the crew because in addition to the normal armor you now had the engine in front which would stop additional projectiles 
Because the point is, in war, you want the crew to survive. You can always provide another of tank. Of course, but the engine in front makes it more vulnerable to immediate explosion, doesn't it, by being hit by it? No, 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 not the way it's built. They built the compartment so the compartment is insulated from any explosion up front. So the, the engine really adds to protection. Interesting. That's that's why the Merkava is such an excellent vehicle, and it's unfortunate that we haven't paid more attention to it. But anyway, other than that, the, the, the Leopard is just the Leopard 4, which is what they're talking about, is a very fine tank. Does everything Harris can do and more, and it doesn't. it's not a fuel problem. Did you have anything to do with the Israeli tank development? I'm just curious because you're a tank man. No, no, that no, that uh, that man has just uh, passed away. Actually, uh, he, he was a very interesting, interesting man, kind of a cantankerous character, as you can imagine. Please, an Israeli being cantankerous. You must be joking. Uh, yeah. No, but uh, no, he, he passed away recently. But no, I didn't. But I'm just an admirer. And of course, the thing they do which we're unwilling to do is that they simply take out a fresh piece of paper. They sit down and they draw something new and say, let's go try this. And they'll tinker with it and experiment with it under all sorts of conditions until they get something that works. We tend to build on whatever is already there, another version of it, or, you know, it becomes a Rube Goldberg <laughs> device. It has to have, you know, 16 different weapon systems on it, and it has to protect against 5,000 different threats. You know, that, that sort of thing never works. The Israelis don't have that problem. They're not worried about white supremacy in the plans. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the enemy, if you're an Israeli, the enemy is at your gates. It's a little different. Well, and here the, it makes well, a difference. Wait, but, but Colonel, and here the enemies through the gates. Yes. We won't go into that one. Uh, uh, so 1.5 million people. We talked about that. Yesterday, NATO surveillance planes deployed to Romania. What's that about? Well, first of all, I don't know what specific planes they're talking about, if they're fighters or whatever. It looks to me right now as though we're doing a lot of things out of a sense of desperation. Uh, let me explain. Desperation? When, yeah. When you talk to someone who's in, in, the, in finance, in the markets, you'll hear people routinely say, you know, what are the fundamentals? Uh, what are the fundamentals? Before I invest in something, what are the fundamentals? Before I invest in the market, what are the fundamentals? When we decided, or the sainted leadership in Washington decided to unleash this war on Russia, which is really what right. happened, the Russians simply responded to try and defend themselves after they'd lost thousands of, of Russians in the two provinces, Luhansk and Donetsk, to Ukrainian artillery and rocket fire. And they saw this huge Ukrainian army building up in, in pre preparation for an attack. The Russians said, that's enough. We're going to put an end to this. But when we decided to uh, go pedal to the metal, so to say, we, we, we failed to address the fundamentals. First, can you isolate your opponent? The answer is no, you can't isolate Russia. You can't isolate it from other countries. You can't isolate its markets. You can't isolate its industries. Second, can you starve it of resources? No, they have all of the resources that they need. How much can you hurt it given the position of their economy? Well, their economy is not the strongest, but their economy is not really vulnerable to much that we can do to it because it's not that closely integrated with the rest of the world. So all of those mistakes were made up front. Then the second was, well, look at these Russians. They staggered into eastern Ukraine. They didn't come in with guns blazing. 
They seem to have made all of these terrible mistakes, yet nobody listened to Putin when he said, we don't really want to kill large numbers of Ukrainian Orthodox Christians. We're not here to murder people. We want a negotiated settlement. So his operation was designed from the beginning to be limited and to demonstrate the seriousness with which they were treating the, the strategic question of Ukraine's membership in NATO and its position geopolitically vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Well, we decided to ignore all of that. And for 90 days, Putin, frankly, I think, persisted in the delusion that he was going to find somebody to talk to to end it. Finally, after 90 days, he said, well, this isn't going to work. And they went over to the defense and economy of force measure, made decisions about mobilization, committing additional forces, changing out the command structure, altering the command structure. So here we sit now at the end of this process, and the Russians are now prepared to strike a crushing blow. In the meantime, they've continued to incrementally strengthen their position in the South and conduct limited operations designed for the most part to entice the Ukrainians into attacking, which they've mm. done, which has cost the Ukrainians immense numbers of soldiers. Now, right now, we're looking at 122,000 dead Ukrainians in uniform <clears throat> that we can pinpoint. Mm. In addition to that, they admit, the Ukrainians admit, that they have 35,000 more Ukrainian soldiers missing in oh action. Well, those are presumed dead. So now you're talking about 157,000 dead Ukrainian troops, another three, 400,000 wounded because the hospitals are bursting with wounded, terrible wounds. And the Russians, meantime, have lost, we estimate, between 16 and 20,000 dead and perhaps 20, 30, 40,000 wounded at the most. So what has happened is that Ukraine has drained itself of strength, of power, of capability, and the Russians are now peaking. They're stronger than they've ever been. Their force is stronger than it's been in 30 years, and it's going to get much stronger after this war. And as a result, I think everyone in Washington is saying, we've got to ship everything we can before it's too late. The problem is, it is too late. Ukraine has no chance whatsoever of winning this. Not thing. only that. And the intelligent thing is to stop. Well, of it. course. And here's a part that troubles me deeply. At Davos, Kissinger, who was the lone holdout amongst the old guard intelligentsia, so to speak, who called for a settlement four months ago, and was roundly called every name under the sun, gravely disappointed me. But of course, I don't know him, but I know why he did it. He announced from Davos that there's no reason Ukraine should not join NATO. Now that this process has reached this level, it, it, the idea of a neutral Ukraine under these conditions is no longer meaningful. And at the end of the process that I described, it ought to be guaranteed by NATO in whatever forms NATO can develop. But I believe Ukrainian membership in NATO would be a appropriate outcome. When I saw that, I said, that's so clear what happened. He was told, you want to stay in the club, uh, Hank? You want to stay in the club, Hank? Well, here's the party line. The party line is Ukraine joins NATO. So then he couched it by saying, however, they sh still should seek a settlement. There should be peace. So he wanted it both ways. Typical uh, fork tongue Henry Kissinger. The old Kissinger came back. I'm sure you would agree with me. There's almost nothing that could be. I mean, that that's a clear analysis that I don't think could be beaten. I, I'm not trying to compete with anyone here, but 
Okay, so Kissinger now has uh, joined NATO. What is that going to mean? Bring bring nuclear weapons to the border of Russia? Well, it means, well, of course, that's the Russian uh, standpoint. They believed from the very beginning that pressing further and further east up against the Russia's eastern borders was simply an opportunity for us to eventually place missiles in very close proximity, not just to their country, but to their nuclear deterrent. And they made that clear. That's something that Putin spoke about publicly in 2008. And he tried to warn people in Budapest, look, we're not going to tolerate this. You're not listening. This is, we don't want this. We didn't bother to listen. But I think, you know, you're probably right about uh, Mr. Kissinger. I I don't know him personally. I've read a lot of his, his material. He certainly has the capacity for duplicity, as most <laughs> diplomats do. You are but such this, a diplomat. Uh, I is, could see how you rose up the ranks. <laughs> I I didn't rise that far. Come well, on. If, if you and, should be the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, we'd have it. We wouldn't have had the situation uh, if you were. But I think I think you're right. I think he was basically pressured to, by his fellow club members to join in. And it's unfortunate because he could have played a much more decisive role. I always go back to George Kennan, who, God bless him, until the bitter end, held his line against all of this. And he repeatedly warned against NATO expansion. But George Kennan was someone that had lived for years in Europe. and He understood the Russians. He spoke Russian, spoke German, spoke French. Uh, he, he was he was uh, an unusual treasure for the United States. We didn't listen enough to we him. We don't have an equivalent in America today or in Europe. Someone of stature, someone of so-called gravitas, who is standing up and saying this has to stop. No one. No one. Well, no one. No one that we will pay attention to. I think Ambassador Chaz Freeman, he was ambassador to both China and Saudi Arabia, has argued publicly against this. Ambassador Matlock, who was ambassador to Russia uh, (coughs) under Reagan or the Soviet Union, has made similar statements. But, you know, you know the media. Uh, Look what's happened to you. Uh, I used to flip the dial and listen to Savage. Then all of a sudden, I couldn't flip the dial anymore. Well, that's because they they flipped me off the dial. Yeah, and I think the same thing has happened to the rest of us that don't take a position that the media likes. And the media is 100% on board for this war with Russia. And they'll all tell you, I've had more than one journal. Oh, Russia's terrible. It's evil. I said, have you ever been there? No. Um, What have you seen? Well, uh, nothing. Well, then why are you taking this position? Well, it's bad. We all know that. And Putin is evil and on and on. Okay, fine. And you find out that they're not going to carry the message that they don't want to reach the American people. That's that's simple. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. Colonel, last time you were on this podcast, you said the Russians were waiting for two things to launch their big and expected winter offensive. One was for the uh, South to freeze over so that North and South were frozen so that mechanized equipment could move rapidly over the ground. Has that occurred yet? Yes. So when do you estimate the Russian winter offensive will begin? And in your estimation, as a very experienced tank commander, what will this what will this look like? How far? What are they going to do in this offensive? It's a pincer attack north and south. Well, first of all, I think uh, it is it is now sufficiently hardened in the south to support the traffic. And I rather expect that the storm will break sometime between the 21st of January and the 6th or 7th of February. Why? Why in such a short window? 
Well, I think that you have almost no illumination uh, as of 21 January. It's a new moon, so there's practically zero illumination. Jeez. Attacking forces usually like to attack when there is no illumination because that favors them and it makes it tougher on the defenders. A new moon when? Uh, no, no illumination on 21 January. No illumination. Oh. Yeah. It's a new moon, so you, there's, there's nothing out there. And, and as you move toward... 6-7 February, you get increasing illumination. Amazing. But for your breakthrough attack, if you will, your initial assault, you have the cover of darkness. And even though we have thermal imagery sites and we are providing the Ukrainians with detailed uh, assessments and information from our satellite-based uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance platforms, nevertheless, it's going to be difficult. And I think we'll know when the offenses are beginning, when two things happen. I think you're going to see jamming of our GPS satellites. I was going to ask that. That's going to happen. I think you're going to see electronic warfare used on a wow. on a grand scale against our satellites. If we press the issue and threaten the Russians, I suppose the Russians could shoot them down if they want to. I think the Russians would rather jam them than shoot them down because unlike us, the Russians take the position that this war will end ah. and they would like to live with everybody. Wow. You know, this is one of the problems I have with us in 1944, early in 44, when we were bombing the living daylights out of Japan and Germany, Admiral Leahy, who was uh, Franklin Roosevelt's senior military advisor, he'd been the chief of naval operations, and he functioned during the war essentially as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And he brought uh, Marshall and uh, Arnold over to the White House, the chief staff of the Army and the Army Air Corps. And he looked at him and he said, what in the hell are you doing? And they looked at him and they said, what do you mean? He said, you, you are destroying everything. There is no re reason to destroy everything. Mm. Don't you two men understand that when this war ends, mm. we want to live with the Germans and the Japanese. Now, I don't hear anybody talking remotely like that in the West, oh, but no. that was Admiral Leahy, and he deserves a lot of credit for that because we did a lot of unnecessary damage, and we continued to do so after the war, as we discussed earlier. But that's that, that I think, is on the minds of the Russians. I, I think, again, they look at Ukraine, and they don't see Ukraine as incurably hostile. After all, it's been part of their world for a thousand years, and I think they want to live with the Ukrainians when it's over. Are the Ukrainians and Russians sort of cousins? Well, of course. I mean, there there are differences depending upon who you want to talk to in the in the gene markers. Uh, but I mean, at the end at the end of the day, they have traveled a long road with each other, and they you know I don't think uh, Putin wants a permanently hostile Ukraine. Now, as the second part of your question is, what will they do? And they have the capacity for three major axes: one that comes up from the south on the east side of the Dnieper River one that comes from the western end of ukraine across to the Dnieper river from from where on western ukraine where would they where would they launch from over over just west of kharkov west of kharkov you look at the map is that why they were fighting so much over kharkov because russia wanted it as a launching base no i i don't think so russia actually gave it up because it was too much trouble to hold because it's flat and open but if you can <clears throat> but given the force ratios now and the and the deteriorated ukrainian position you can come in from the west cross the oxal river and then you have a free uh free and open highway all the way to kiev 
And you can come up from the south uh, through all of this. You know, you've heard all about Bakhmut and yes. Solidar and all yes. these places that have fallen. Yeah. Uh, that's another another avenue of approach effectively opening up and through Zaborosia. So the Russians can come up from the south, they can come in from the east, and, and you essentially annihilate the Ukrainian military power that's on the east side of the Dnieper. Now, they also have the capacity to attack from Belarusia, attack south, go straight down, right to the middle of Ukraine, where they could go closer to... Uh, Kiev, or they could go closer west, closer to, say, Lvov. I don't know. I mean, they have that potential, and I don't know that they will do that immediately. In other words, could the Russians sustain these attacks on three axes? Yes, they probably could. Will they? I don't think so. I think the Russians are cautious, and I think they will probably try to clean up everything east of the Dnieper first mm. before they do anything on the western side. But bear in mind, if they do that, by the time they turn west and you have 300,000 combat troops uh, that are paused to crush what remains west of the Dnieper River. The, the city of Bakhmut that you just mentioned, center of fighting in recent weeks. Uh, who's in charge? Because Zelensky had the nerve to lie, I think, yesterday or the day before and say they're, they're still fighting there and uh, the Russians haven't taken it. Do you know what the truth is? Oh, yes, it's in Russian hands. Uh, the Ukrainians have lied repeatedly all through this business from the very beginning. I mean, they this whole notion of you just give us a few more tanks and guns and we can win. Again, it's back to what we were talking about earlier. What are the fundamentals? And the fundamentals are bad. You don't train people overnight to do lots of complex things. And you introduce several different sets of equipment to different organizations and it's very difficult to maintain those. And again, you haven't trained on these for very long. Somebody said, well, it doesn't take that long to learn how to operate a tank. Mm -hmm. And I spent, I was on virtually every tank that the U.S. Army ever produced. And I would say, yes, that's probably true. You could, you could train somebody in a few days, but that doesn't teach them how to employ it. It doesn't teach them how to maintain it effectively. It doesn't teach them a whole range of tasks that come with the package. And that's the problem. It's back to the uh, ADA, the air defense business. Uh, how much can you reasonably accomplish? And again, that goes back to something else that you brought up, <coughs> Excuse me, which is, are we going to send Western, quote unquote, contractors or Western soldiers to operate some of these things? Because the Ukrainians simply can't pick it up that quickly. I don't know. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Well, I remember in the early days of the, the uh, Vietnam War, there were rumors that uh, Chinese were sending Chinese pilots to fly the Vietnamese air airplanes, the, the jets, the, the MiGs. I think they were MiG-17s at the time. I don't remember. But they were Russian pilots, Ch Chinese pilots, I believe. Or were they Russian pilots? I'm not sure. No, in Korea, they were Russians, <clears throat> but in uh, Vietnam, some of them were Chinese. Okay. So, but there were a lot of Chinese on the ground in North Vietnam. So it's not unlikely that the genius we have in the White House and the um, merry jesters around him would not send U.S. military to boots on the ground. I mean, they'll escalate. They're doing it step by step to introduce well, U.S. troops through NATO. You know, you know, this is the other issue. Our president 
and I would argue most of our political leaders, cabinet members, have made a lot of very ill-considered statements. <laughs> and you continue to hear this nonsense. Until Putin is gone, there, there can be no peace, you know. Until uh, <clears throat> they agree to evacuate every single inch of so-called Ukrainian soil, and we all know historically that most of what they've got out there in eastern Ukraine was never Ukrainian, uh, until they until they get out of Crimea, all this sort of business. When you when you make these foolish pronouncements, and it becomes increasingly difficult to retreat from them, mm. when it when it becomes obvious that you can never attain those goals, that's impossible. I mean, that what where the Russians are right now, they're not giving up. And the people that the people that lived there were overwhelmingly Russians. They're not they're not backing out. And now you're asking them to essentially depose their leader in the Kremlin. It, it's all nonsense. Well, wait a minute. I thought he was dying of cancer six months ago. Yeah, he well, dying Russia, of cancer. He was insane. He had Parkinson's disease with arrows in the New York Post showing the shaking hand holding onto the <laughs> desk. Uh, every other day, there's another rumor about Putin that I don't believe a word of. Well, look, just just keep something else in mind. We keep talking about them running out of ammunition. Right now, the Russians can fire 60,000 rounds of artillery every day. What? 60,000 rounds. That includes rockets, missiles, hard shell ammunition every day. The most that the Ukrainians can fire on a daily basis is about 6,000. And that's one of the reasons we just removed the 155 millimeter stocks that are in Israel with the goal of sending them to Ukraine. Mm. And uh, some of my Israeli friends are uncomfortable with that. But uh, as Netanyahu pointed out, he's correct. That's our property. We can do with it what we want. You mean now that we've given it to them, they can do what they want with it? No, no, no. That 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 the one five five ammunition on the ground in Israel is American property. Well, well, but we sent it to Israel, didn't we? Yeah, but for our use potentially in Israel. Yes, in the event that it was a serious emergency, and Israel was con confronting an existential threat, we stockpiled ammunition there with the goal of rapidly reinforcing. And that's where it comes from. So you've got these huge stocks of ammunition which we are now removing. And and sending to Ukraine. So and as I said, you know, Netanyahu is right. He said this is this is American property. They can take it. Yeah, but it certainly makes them a little more vulnerable to to their own uh, for their uh, for their own security purposes, doesn't it? Well, they certainly feel that way. But uh, you know, nevertheless, this is what's happened, and the reason is what I said. You have six thousand rounds a day versus sixty thousand on the Russian side, and remember that the majority of Russian artillery. And I'm talking about rocket artillery, tactical ballistic missiles, everything. The majority of it hasn't even been employed yet, doctor. Yeah, right. This is a, a, I think this is a point we should pause at. What we have seen thus far in the Russian offensive has been minimalist. Would that be an accurate statement? Yes. So when the winter offensive begins, as you say, in the next few weeks, between a 121 and two, Oh, six. Will it, be, will it be tanks, artillery, aircraft? What will it be? Well, the Russians have an expression that we should embrace. They talk about all arms warfare. You're going to see attacks that in, involve the integration of everything. We talk about combined arms. That's really very limited. That's tanks, infantry, and some artillery. 
All arms includes everything from electronic warfare to tactical ballistic missiles to infantry fighting vehicles. I think you're going to see something that's very carefully scripted and rehearsed that will be devastating in its impact because the enemy they are attacking has been weakened fatally. And that's why I'm saying everybody in Washington privately has seen the truth. The truth is Ukraine is uh, scheduled for annihilation, and uh, but we're unwilling to negotiate. And we've made it very clear that, you know, you, the Russians have to accept public humiliation and defeat before we're willing to talk to them. So it's not going to happen. But all we've done is have Russia rearm, Russia rebuild, Russia retrain, Russia build up a bigger army, and Russia learn how to use all of these integrated forces together. That's what we've achieved thus far. Yes. At the same time, we're saying we fear Russia doing to other nations what they've done to Ukraine, which I don't think uh, they intended to do. I don't think they wanted to take Poland and Romania and the Baltic countries. They're just nobody not- wants Poland. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> That's not fair. Uh, no, I'm serious, especially the Russians, for God's sakes. That's the last place they want to go. Why? Because of what happened there last time? Oh, they've just said, you know, there's a terrible history there. They're not fools. They know that. I mean, you, you had... Uh, Putin more than once over the last 10 years make the comment, I'm sure the Western Ukrainians would be a lot happier under Polish administration than under Russian. <laughs> and he's right. Now, I'm, I'm not sure, based upon my experience with Ukrainians growing up with them, that they'll be happy under anybody's administration other than their own. That's another subject. But uh, the, uh, my point is, no, he doesn't want that. Uh, there's no evidence for that. War is a big expense. I don't want to quote the Godfather too much, but it's true. <laughs> War is a big expense. Lots of blood. And the other thing is that we're already seeing this. War always breeds hatred. Because the longer it lasts, the more people who are harmed, the more people who are killed, the more profound the hatred that takes root. So you don't want these things to drag out. And these are the things that the president of the United States and his peers in, in Western Europe seem to have completely ignored. Nothing good will come of this. So the sooner it can end on whatever terms everyone can live with, the better. And you always want terms with which your opponent can, can live. live with. Of you, course. You don't want to break the opponent and and humiliate the opponent, as was done to Germany after World War One, which is a basic history lesson. League of Nations reparations, it bred the hatred. It led to the arrival of Hitler because the Germans were ready for someone to give them back their dignity. Now, of course, we're not supporting Hitler here. I'm Jewish, number one. But aside from that, I mean, we all know Hitler was not someone to support. But the German people wanted someone to stand up for them after what was done to them after World War One, is my point. Well, you're right. And the other thing is that... Uh the Kaiser in Berlin and the Emperor in Vienna, even the Tsar in Moscow were all humanitarians compared with the scum and the trash that replaced them. Jesus. I mean, see, people don't seem to understand that. I think I, I read the other day that uh, under Tsar Nicholas I, between 1903 and 1913, he personally signed off on the execution of 10 people. He did. Yes, Ten that's people. it. Ten people, ten people in 10 years compared to Stalin, who killed for fun. Oh, my God, there's, there's no comp there's no comparison. That's why I say, you know, the, the, the Kaiser in Berlin was a decent human being. 
He, he wasn't some sort of arch evil character by any stretch of the imagination. Neither was Emperor Franz Josef. But we're treating Putin as though he's something he's not. We're treating Russia as though it's something it's not. The other day I said to somebody, you're smart enough to figure out that Germany is no longer a Nazi state. Why can't you figure out that Russia is no longer a communist state? Well, because the narrative is, of course, set in stone right now in America amongst the American uh, left, but not just the left. When you've got people on Fox News calling for war every day, like Sean Hannity and such yeah. and company, people who themselves have never been in combat, never been in the military. Uh, it's shocking, actually, that they get away with this. They're all in on the war. So the offensive, will it be total, meaning they're not going to carpet bomb Kiev, are they? No, you don't have to do that. But you're going to see the target sets change. Uh, thus far, they have been targeting the energy system, the energy grid, uh, some of the transportation, uh, co some command and control, uh, manufacturing facilities, uh, ammunition depots. Once the, the offensives begin, I think you're going to see major attacks on troop concentrations. Oh, boy. Uh, and major attacks on headquarters. And then any units that may be out there in the West that could come east to reinforce will be devastated, you know, with strikes as well. Mm. But th that will that will happen. And the other thing is, first, you'll see the satellites jammed, I suspect, and anything else that is used. Remember, we have a whole fleet of aircraft. I don't want to go through them and give names because it's inappropriate. But we have a lot of different aircraft that provide excellent surveillance, uh, listening capabilities and, and intelligence on a almost uh, almost uh, real-time basis when you say we Those you mean the united states united states military yes oh yeah we have fleets of aircraft that do that that can uh, look two three hundred miles into uh, ukraine and into russia but i think we're going to see monumental jamming so when the monumental jamming jamming starts and the target sets change along the lines that i've described that's when the attacks will begin i think Home of Borders, Language, Culture, The Savage Nation. Do you believe that the takedown of our infra airport infrastructure last week was related to Russia? <clears throat> I really don't know. Okay. I just don't know. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I, uh, I don't think so. I, I, I thought don't. maybe that was a warning in advance of what they could do to us. Listen, doctor, we've known for the last 20 plus years that our uh, electrical grid, our communication systems are all very vulnerable. And we have done almost nothing about it. Fears of new Russia mobilization, Drudge Report. Massive offensive. Ukraine officials die and crash, making it look as though the Russians shot it down. Uh, <laughs> even though it was probably flying, as you said, in, 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 in heavy fog, crashed into a phone line or something. Yeah. But you and I have discussed the massive offensive. And the U.S. son is saying Vlad's warpath. Putin readying 700,000 troops for massive new offensive in weeks to cut off Ukraine from Europe and face down NATO. You would agree with that, correct? Yes. I mean, one of the things that he absolutely has to do is cut off the Polish border uh, from Ukraine, because that's where 90 plus percent of the materiel and support comes from, from Poland. Poland. That has to happen. Well, you know, the thing that's disturbing to me is that people keep mentioning well, doesn't Putin realize that he'll have to face a 20-year insurgency campaign that we will support in Western Ukraine? 
Well, that's about the dumbest thing I can think of anybody can say, because if a Russian hears that, then the Russian attitude is, well, then we roll right up to the Polish border, right up to Moldova, right up to Romania. We have to control the whole thing because we cannot tolerate that kind of insurgency, intervention and interference from NATO. Again, it's more stupid talk. I mean, we're plumbing the depths of stupidity these days. Well, and virtually every, no one is every, thinking through the Colonel, consequences. In every arena, it's not just in terms of international relations. We have a group of chickens without heads. They don't know what the hell they're doing in any, any sphere that I can tell. So if we're looking at a map together and this little map of Putin's blitzkrieg, uh, General Valery Garasimov, will lead, new war chief, will lead the attack. 700,000 men. But let's talk about the tanks for one minute if we can. Mm-hmm. Don't tanks, they don't fly in. Tanks, no. tanks, tanks come in by, by uh, rail lines, don't they? Well, that's right. And uh, the tanks that, that the Russians have, and I'm now told that they're up to 2,000. Six weeks ago, there were 1,500. Now I'm told they've got, they're up to 2,000. Those have already been positioned. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, the Ukrainian supply, the supply of new tanks, the leopards that are coming, supposedly oh. going to Ukraine. They're going to come through Poland, aren't they? Well, they would have to. I mean, the, the leopard tanks, if if they finally show up, and uh, as we said at the beginning, Prime Minister Schultz has said he is not sending any unless we send M1 series tanks. So that's that probably isn't going to happen. The challengers from from Great Britain, they want 14 of those. So they'll have to cross the channel, be loaded onto trains and then ship to Poland. We have we've just decided to send another brigade of armor from Fort Hood. And that equipment is sitting in the Netherlands that has to be loaded onto trains. And then they'll fly the troops in, presumably to Poland or Lithuania to uh, link up with the equipment. No, but going back to the UK Challenger tanks. For a minute, if I can, again, looking at this from an amateur point of view, uh, they have to they're going to go to Poland to be delivered to Ukraine. Well, don't the Russians have satellites which can track every train that has tanks on them? Yes. And how would they take these trains out with the tanks on them? Well, the Russians aren't going to attack the rail lines because the rail lines are inside NATO. Aha. So they'll wait. They'll wait until the equipment crosses into Ukraine. And then they'll destroy it. How? But they're not going to destroy anything on Polish ground, ah. or Lithuanian soil or German soil, unless unless they are attacked by Polish, German or Lithuanian forces. But once they come over the border from Poland, the tanks, all yes. 14 of them, all 14 of the <laughs> British tanks and i hope they do come with uh, other than lucas wiring yeah that's, oh god that's because i've owned jaguars <laughs> I, I owned classic jaguars for a long while oh yeah the, uh, the, what a wonderful car with the beautiful to look at but uh nevertheless they used to say you needed one jaguar to drive and one for parts they weren't too yeah. far from the truth but let's yeah. say these leopards do arrive i'm sorry the challengers arrive and they're delivered over the border don't the Russians track them every step of the way? And once they're over the border, can they take them out? Yes. Once they go into Ukraine, it's fair game. And how do they take them out? Well, they have a, a whole variety of things. Uh, you know, if, if these things are immobilized in some fashion, they can't go forward because they can't move over bridges. Then that works. I mean, there are a lot of different things they can do. You mean, I mean, you mean if the Russians took out the bridges? 
Yeah, of course. Yeah. And these are very, very heavy tanks. One of the criticisms of our Western tanks has been for a long time that they're all over 50 tons. And that means that most of the bridges they'd have to cross in Eastern Europe and frankly, in much of the rest of the world won't won't take that kind of weight. Now, think of the infrastructure money we could be sending over there to build bridges. Yeah, well, uh, I wouldn't expect the challengers to make much difference. It's uh, it's not a new system. It's an old system. It's been updated but it has uh, it has its problems and its drawbacks. Uh, maybe if they can get them far enough forward, they can use them as stationary guns against advancing Russian troops. I don't know, but I, I don't have much confidence in it. 14 Challenger tanks from the UK in total? Yep. Why, why is the UK so militantly anti-Russian right now? You know, that's an excellent question, and I found it difficult to understand uh, and I talked to a number of uh, people over there, and they, they are just uh, livid with rage. And I'm not sure why. I haven't figured it out. But they're more woke than woke. And in fact, you know, I was reading something earlier today about the prime minister of Finland, this lady. Yeah. Who says that we all need to be prepared to fight for 15 years if necessary. Is she to ready? To drive the Russians out of Ukraine. Is she ready to do it? I doubt it. Well, I, I think she's having her nails done. At this yes. Point. Isn't she coming back from a, a party somewhere with her girlfriend? Why not? So the UK is suddenly anti-Russian to a, a foaming mouth level. No one knows why, other than they've been moved so far to the left that they've outmaneuvered the former communist states in terms of their ideology in many ways called wokeness. But we all know what that is. So uh, January 21st, today is the 18th. Oh, boy, we're close. We're close. Everyone seems to be saying the same thing. It's going to happen very soon. Well, I mean, again, this is all in the hands of Gerasimov, the uh, Soviet or excuse me, Russian chief of the general staff, who's now the overall commander. Va Valery Gerasimov, is he known as a right wing sorry, a hawk? Let's say he must. Be. No, no, no. He, he is known, if anything, as a very professional soldier huh uh, he doesn't manifest much emotion in public uh he seems to be if anything very level-headed very matter-of-fact business-like uh he's learning though let's face it everybody is because when's the last time anybody committed large forces like this on the ground in europe i haven't seen it in my lifetime i'm only 80 yeah, years 1945 i'm only 80 years old yeah. Well, I mean, I think Gerasimov had his hand in the first operation, and I think they learned a lot from what they did to begin with. I think you're going to see the formations they use will be different from what we saw in February. I think almost everything will be brigade size, varying, you know, from four to six thousand. Uh, you'll have a few divisions. Is that, the, is that to limit the target size? I think so, partially. It also is based on their experience that smaller is more maneuverable and faster. Well, what happened in the beginning of this war, invasion of Ukraine by Russia? We well, they saw, use these things they call battalion tactical groups. So we saw a 40-mile line of <coughs> tanks and trucks and armored personnel carriers. Remember that phase of the yep. war? Yep. And I gasped. I said, 40 miles worth of men and weapons? What the hell was that about? Again, I think that the assumptions about what they would face and how rapidly we would agree to negotiate led them down uh, the primrose path. And, and they discovered, look, nobody's going to talk to us. They're not going to negotiate with us. They all want to kill us. 
I mean, the thing that Putin now says over and over and over again to his country, he said, we're not simply at war with this force in Ukraine. We're at war with the collective West. And he's right. Even though I don't think the vast majority of Europeans or Americans want anything to do with the war against Russia. I've never seen a war like this emerging and billowing and growing without a public debate on it in this nation. There's no anti-war uh, movement in this country. For the first time in my lifetime, I see no anti-war movement. All of the so-called regular players of anti-war activity have gone silent. They're all in on this war against Russia. Uh, mm -hmm. It's actually quite shocking to see this. And I keep, at, you know, when I'm when I'm online, Colonel, and I get attacked for being a Russian agent or this and that, which they've stopped doing because that that line is no longer working. That was probably yeah. invented by one of Zelensky's uh, uh, friends from the uh, theater troupe in order to silence the opposition. My answer to them is peace is patriotic. <laughs> you know, it's an old it, it, so. it's an old saying, but it, it actually neutralizes a lot of the criticism because it's true. Peace is the ultimate patriotic thing at a certain point. We're not being attacked. I'm not speaking from the point of view of America being invaded and I'm laying down for the enemy. I'm talking about a war that has nothing whatever to do with us. Nothing. That's my point of view. What the hell does this have to do with U.S. security? Nothing. No. And again, this is this is that we have a manufactured enemy uh, with the Putin label on it that has no interest in fighting with us doesn't present any threat to us. Uh, I would argue that right now the, the principal threat to the United States emanates from Central America. Yes. It comes in the form of illicit drugs and illegal human trafficking. Yes. And those things are tearing us apart, destroying our national cohesion. Uh, and you have a government that is not only indulging it, but seems to encourage it. Yes, waving them over the border. And in the meantime, you know, I, I don't know very many people who really believe that our economy is in great shape. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Well, we're in bad shape here on virtually uh, every level I can think of. And the blitzkrieg that we're all expecting, if you want to call it that, or the lightning war, uh, I don't think it's going to be a lightning war. Do you? No, I think it'll be. It'll be very deliberate and it will be crushing. They will roll them over. And That's the Russian method is roll over the enemy slowly but surely. Well, they'll, it'll be crushing and it will be thorough. And uh, it's tragic and it's unnecessary and it should never have happened. That's the lesson. It could have been stopped. They could have been stopped. Oh, very early. So at the end of the day, there has to be a settlement. There must be for the sake of the world, for the sake of the Ukrainian people, for the sake of Russia, for the sake of world stability. And the dividing line will no doubt be the Dnieper River, correct? I I think so, but again, we we just no. don't know. This thing could this thing could end up stopping at the Polish border. I mean, if, if again, if you are President Putin, and all of your all of your advisors and military commanders are telling you, if we don't complete this task, we run the risk of more trouble down the line. The United States will infiltrate into Western Ukraine and stir up an insurgency. And these diehards that are in Western Ukraine will come after us. So the only solution is to go the whole way. Again, this this is the danger of these uh, ill-considered public statements. 
No one has talked under any circumstances, as you point out, about the criticality of peace. It's not even in the quotient. I don't see it anywhere. It's never, never even mentioned. It's not even a headline. Should there be peace? Should there be peace talks? What will it take to make this stop? Uh, how do we settle this dispute? Is there any middle ground that can be met between Ukraine and Russia? I don't see one word along those lines virtually anywhere. The only one I saw, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, was uh, four months ago when Kissinger spoke wisely. And of course, he has now capitulated to the uh, the group that is running the world at Davos. I don't have much hope for any of this myself. Well, well, I think we probably should give uh, President Trump some credit for having urged uh, an end to the fighting and peace yeah, talks. Yeah, but he, now, I haven't heard no, much from no, him but since you don't, then. See, you don't hear much about what Trump says that's good. All we hear is Trump's bad. But, you know, you bring up Trump for a minute. Um, were you an advisor to Trump when he was in power at all? Not really. I, I mean, I, I was on the outside until he brought me in to advise the Secretary of Defense, which in, in truth, you know, he, he had me there to, to advise him and to support him over the last 60 days, 90 days that he was in office. Who was the Secretary of Defense at that time? The acting Secretary of Defense at the time was uh, Chris Miller. See, these are silent individuals who we've never heard of. And yet Milley is everywhere. You see him as the, almost like General Eisenhower now. That's a sarcastic. Well, Milley was really in charge. That's the problem. And he's remained in charge. I would tell you that he is making all the decisions over in the Department of Defense that he can make. Well, what about the great defense secretary? Uh, I, you know, I can't evaluate the man. I don't know him, but I just don't see much evidence that he's influencing anything. I think everything starts and ends with Milley. Isn't Milley? And, you know, you mentioned his his trip uh, I think that one of the reasons he went there was this man's illusion. He was trying to make it clear to him that if the Ukrainian forces are to survive, they have to break contact and withdraw in front of the Russians. And you have Zelensky that says that's impossible. We we have to maintain the fiction that we can win. And if you break contact with the Russians and withdraw, that'll that'll signal weakness. And then we're through. People won't support us. So I think that's really what the debate is all Wait, about. Wait, I want to follow that before you go, Colonel. Zelensky has to maintain the fiction of what? The, the fiction that they can still win. Ah, but what does it have to do with it? What does it have to do with Milley going there? And well, Zeluzhny, Zeluzhny, the commander in chief of Ukrainian forces, has allegedly had enormous difficulty dealing with Zelensky. Zelensky has insisted on these counterattacks over and over and over again when Zeluzhny has reportedly counseled Wait, against I'm it. I'm hearing that, that the, the comedian is now yes. doing what Hitler did, overriding his own generals? Yes, I think he's he's very Hitlerian. Well, I don't know why sense. you would say that. He's only closed down all opposition in the media, uh, closed down <laughs> churches that don't agree with him. I wouldn't say he's a bad fellow. After all, he's running the only democracy in the area. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah, I'm sorry. Please, you step. You went <laughs> off the script, Colonel. Well, yeah. Well, anyway, we're, we're, the point is that I, I think he was looking, looking for someone with whom he could commiserate, and so I think Millie went there to commiserate with Zeluzhny, and to give and Zeluzhny wanted to give Millie a true picture. Oh. Well, that's that's fine, but I don't think it makes any difference because there's no evidence that either uh, Zelensky or his sponsors in washington have any intention of changing course yeah but we don't have to worry because another new story just came out mad vlad putin's cancer worsening 
and he could lash out with nuke threats, claims insider. So he's going to die of cancer before this war gets worse. Colonel, I don't think we should worry too much. Well, the only thing we should say in connection with that, and I have no inside knowledge whatsoever about Mr. Putin's health. But if Mr. Putin were to die and be replaced, I would tell everyone that whoever takes over is liable to be infinitely less friendly to us than Putin. Putin was always willing to do business with the West. Putin understood the West. Remember, the man's fluent in German. Every time he talked to Angela Merkel or he talked to uh, Schultz, he spoke in German. He, he knows something about us, and he wants peace with us or has wanted it in the past. And he's made that clear. Whoever succeeds him is very unlikely to be remotely like that. I would expect someone far more nationalist and more uh, martial and militant. Colonel, before you go, you mentioned uh, something that triggered uh, an idea that I wanted to run by you. Under Obama, ISIS was running wild through the Middle East, raping, murdering, the most imaginable horror, unimaginable horrors. And then Trump came along and he had combined Air Force power between U.S. Air Force, Russian Air Force. It was one of the happiest periods of my life to see the U.S. and Russia using their air forces in a joint effort to wipe ISIS off the playing field, which they did. And that was the U.S. Air Force, the Russian Air Force under Trump joined together, attacked ISIS and drove them away from these cities and these towns. It was a great moment in American history. I thought I thought this was a great harbinger of what the future might look like. And then we get this. I'll use the words this gangster regime in the White House that's there now with shady ties to Ukraine going back a very long time. And we have this disaster here, which seems to me getting worse, not better since we last spoke. And I only wish to God more sensible men or women would prevail and say, stop this. This is going to get too bad, too fast. We won't be able to contain it. It's World War One all over again, stage by stage by stage by stage. And it, it's always that way. The wars seem to go that way. And there's no one there to stop it. Except that I would point out that in contrast to the situation in 1914, <clears throat> the populations, though they're obviously not being consulted, the populations are overwhelmingly opposed to war. Absolutely. And that's how I would think that if a vote were taken in America, a legitimate vote, uh, not using the machines that we used in the last election. That's uh, if a legitimate vote were held today on, you know, should the U.S. be more involved in the war between Russia and Ukraine? Should let's put it on. Should U.S. troops, should U.S. weapons be sent to Ukraine? Should U.S. troops be sent to Ukraine? I think the vote would be 90 to 10. No, certainly the majority would say no, but also keep something else in mind that people have gotten accustomed to the myth that war is something that happens on somebody else's uh-huh. soil, not here. And that's hurt us badly because we have taken actions over the last 50 years repeatedly against other people in other parts of the world who are in no position to retaliate and right. harm us. That's not the case with no. the Russians. They have ICBMs that can reach us in minutes. And people don't understand that. And once, once they go in to Ukraine... It's going to have an impact in a, a number of ways that very few people realize. First of all, it's going to raise 
at least the potential for a nuclear exchange with us, not because of anything the Russians do, but because of stupidity on our part. I don't, I, I fear that once the Russians begin to crush the Ukrainians out of existence, that the potential for all sorts of dumb policy oh, decisions in I've Washington increases. Colonel, I see it online. Idiots, I don't know who they are. They could be working for the government saying the only way to stop Putin is to nuke <clears throat> Moscow. Now, you may say it's just an idiot online. I don't know who it is. It could be a government official, for all we know. Yeah. You know, people don't realize that, uh, you know, Eisenhower always talked about peace and prosperity as moving hand in hand. He understood that war does not really enhance prosperity, raise living standards and improve national health. Uh, I think Eisenhower was widely accepted as as being right on this subject for the next several decades. My favorite. All of this ended with the end of the Cold War. And there has been a surprising turn of events that has convinced people in Washington that somehow or another, they can do things now that could never have been done before. And it's very dangerous. And they have done exactly what you said at the beginning. They have caused Russia to re-examine itself and conclude that it must maintain an invincible force on the Eurasian continent if it is to survive, Hmm. which is the exact opposite of what we said we wanted to achieve. Well, I'll, I'll conclude our podcast with one statement again. Peace is patriotic. You know, I see the article, WEF War Party, Finland's millennial PM back supporting Ukraine for 15 years. She's the party animal feminist running Finland. She's just back from a yeah. rave somewhere on probably uh, LSD, it looks like to me. And uh, of course, she's an expert. Slaughterhouse Five. Any final words, uh, Colonel? God bless America. (laughs) I'm glad you said it. I'm glad you said it. Well, until next time, with God's will, I hope we meet again and we uh, meet on better terms. I think it's going to be on much worse terms for the world, not better by what we see. We'll see. You think you think cool heads will prevail before then? I I hope so. But there's no way to know. We're in new territory now. Uncharted waters. I don't know whether to call you Colonel or Doctor. Do people call you Doctor Colonel or Colonel Doctor? I answer to most things, provided they're not lewd or nasty. You know, I had a judge on the other day, a Southern gentleman in the seventies, and we were talking about packing the Supreme Court. Wonderful man, he was on the bench for forty years. So he started calling me Doctor. I said, "Just call me Michael." He said, "Well, you can call me Bud or something like that." You know, old school. He said, "You can call me anything, but late to dinner." <laughs> lovely old gentleman great man i shouldn't say all that i think he was 10 years younger than <laughs> <laughs> colonel thanks it's always a pleasure i have a question what is that bronze behind you because i'm a collector of bronzes is that a remington that's a remington and it's the trooper of the plains a real remington yeah it, it, well it's a it's a reproduction of the original the original is in the white house <laughs> and, i would think uh, you should this- have the original and joe should have the, the copy Well, the interesting thing is in every, it used to be, I I assume it still exists, but I don't know. In every division in the army, they had something called the Draper Award. And that was for the top armored unit in the division at the company level or troop level. Mm. And uh, my company won that when I was in command at Fort Carson, Colorado in 1981. God. So we we got to keep we got to keep that trophy ah. in our in our sort of uh, office, you know, in the 
orderly room, as we used to call it, for a whole year. Then we had to turn it back over to the division. And it was a competition. It looked at everything that you did, your performance in gunnery, quality of your barracks, uh, state of repair, soldier readiness for combat, all that. So I won it. And uh, my battalion commander at the time was very happy. And his name was Wes Clark. Oh, my God. So he and I go back a long time, and and uh, uh, he and I don't agree on a lot of these things, but you will never hear me criticize him publicly because I continue to harbor great affection and admiration for Wes Clark. Isn't that something? Well, I, I consider him a friend. It's interesting how this came up in that I just looked at that piece of art behind you because I collect bronzes, as I say, and I, I've seen it in several of your podcasts and appearances on YouTube. And I said, wait a minute, it has to be a copy of a Remington, if not an original somewhere. And I said, it's a cavalryman, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's a trooper of the plains. And he's in truth in those days when they attacked, they put the reins between their teeth and they had a 45 in each hand <laughs> oh, God. and they would shoot that way. <laughs> and it was a very deadly tactic. It was actually invented by the Southern cavalrymen during the Civil War. Deadly because they had double the firepower, correct? Yes, and they would ride right up to these uh, masses of infantry and just fire, fire, fire into their ranks. Oh, my God. And it was very deadly. And then that's they continued after the Civil War. He he uh, in this one, he's he's got the reins, but he only has one uh, one revolver. Uh, but in truth, they used two whenever they could. Well, you see, that's an example of white supremacy. And I think statues like that have to be eliminated. Well, we had two, at least two regiments of black cavalrymen who were very excellent cavalrymen. So I, I, I guess nobody knows that. <laughs> nobody knows anything. What, how could they know <laughs> a thing like that? Colonel, always a pleasure speaking with a gentleman and a scholar. And I thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, doctor. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and you'll learn something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.